Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietney. So David, what is this thing about being 11 years old and suddenly your mind is corrupted with new possibilities? It happened to you, it happened to me, and in fact it happened to one of our guests on the show today. It's an impressionable age. That whole age range gene is one that um, leaves deep impressions on the psyche, and especially because your mind at that age, I think, is really open to the kinds of experiences that as we become adults, we become very jaded, and our appreciation of mysticism really seems to be affected in a, in a detrimental way, or we, we kind of veer that mysticism off towards religion, what we brought up in our first episode. Um, it's uh, it's interesting that people seem to have these revelations at a relatively early age, and it affects the rest of their lives, as it did you, as it did me. And as it did Tim Beckley, sometimes known as Mr. UFO, and we're going to find out why. And he's going to be one of the guests we're going to have today on the PowerCast. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And since last week, we've gotten a lot of response and a lot of people who want to get on the show. And we've also invited a lot of interesting people. And just to give you an example, in a future episode, we're going to feature Larry Arnold, who's written a book about spontaneous human combustion. Is that an urban legend or is it real? Are people just burning up? And we're not talking about burning up because they don't like someone's politics or burning up because it's a hot room, but I mean just bursting into flame. There's been a good a bit of photographic evidence, Gene. So this is this is one realm of the paranormal world, as it were, that does have fairly substantial photographic evidence. And the evidence is very odd. You see a body all burned up, laying on the uh, on a floor, on carpeting that is barely burned around it. And that's just that's just plain strange. It is indeed. The other strange guest we're going to have. I don't say he's a strange person, but his views are very unique. And that's Bill Burns of UFO Magazine, who's co-author of a book called The Day After Roswell. And we'll talk about that on next week's show. This week, in addition to Mr. UFO Tim Beckley, we're going to hear from Tim Swartz. Tim Swartz is a colleague of Tim Beckley's. It's the double Tims today. It's Tim... Tim Squared. Tim Squared or the Tim Show or something like that. But Tim Swartz is editor of Conspiracy Journal, and he's going to talk about a peculiar character named of Richard S. Shaver, who said that there are two races of beings living beneath the surface of the Earth. It's the Hollow Earth stuff. This is the Hollow Earth stuff. Yeah. And he talks about people that I knew years ago. Richard Shaver, I'm one of the few people in the universe, I guess, who actually interviewed that man years ago. And I also interviewed the person who I guess we'd characterize as his mentor, Ray Palmer. Ray Palmer was a very well-known science fiction editor of the 1940s. He edited Amazing Stories magazine. And Tim Swartz, as I said, is a kind of an interesting person because he covers a lot of these subjects, but he doesn't necessarily believe in everything he reads or writes. Mm-hmm. He can be skeptical, but we also talk about Area 51. That's going to be later on in the show. Right so now, he's kind of like me. In other words, he's, he's sort of skeptical. He, he's got interest in this stuff, but he's not a full believer yet, is what we're saying. Indeed. In fact, I guess in, on this show, I've been classified as the believer. You're the believer. I'm the believer, <laughs> and you're the skeptic. 
Is, is that how well, it works? I, I, I think so. I, I, you know, I want to. I want to understand. I don't want to believe. I want to know. And there's a big difference there, Gene. Well, I guess it's kind of the bad cop, good cop routine that we can do on a guest. Except yeah. I don't believe all these things. Okay, there are a lot of things out there that I do not necessarily buy. I don't accept them. But I think also that people have a right to express their point of view, even if they express viewpoints that are kind of weird, kind of out there, kind of far beyond what we consider to be reality. But, you know, a lot of surveys, polls show that the majority of people believe there are intelligent beings. Now, these are surveys in the United States, right? These are surveys in the United States. We're not talking about South America. We're not talking about Europe. We're not talking about Asia. In the United States, the majority of people believe that there are extraterrestrial beings there are beings out there a lot of people believe in life after death a lot of people have reported experiences where they see quote unquote dead people and there are a lot of people who undergo strange experiences i'll give you one very personal one this happened over 20 years ago and my mother-in-law literally died in her daughter's arms that's my wife in my wife's arms and we know that she was suffering what apparently looked like a seizure or a heart attack and we called 911 to get the medics out there and then a few minutes later my wife this was after she was taken on board uh, our mother-in-law was taken on board the ambulance and my wife is sitting there in tears and she suddenly feels this sudden rush in her gut hmm which is frightening and comforting at the same time, and that's a rush in her gut. Yeah, like in her right, right in her like a, a rush inside her body, just like something, just like some kind of pressure or or something like that. Right. Almost like somebody's trying to hug her real hard, almost so from the inside. It was an actual real physical sensation. She it had. was a physical sensation, and based on what we learned later, this physical sensation occurred at precisely the moment that her mother died. And she wasn't aware that her mother had actually stopped, uh, her heart stopped beating in the ambulance. She wasn't aware of that till later, but she felt this experience at that exact moment. And my wife doesn't necessarily believe this kind of thing. She doesn't follow the literature that much. She's read a couple of articles about it. But this is something that happens to people. You know, I'll tell you, along those lines, my father's twin sister, um, who outlived him, she tells a story, and, and by the way, she had no belief in any of this stuff. She was very skeptical about anything dealing with paranormal. And um, when my father passed away, my my aunt tells the story that she um, she was at, at home in her apartment, and apparently, right around the moment that my dad passed, my my aunt saw this light in her apartment that kind of enveloped her, and she fell that it was my father's soul kind of parting from her. She felt this very tangibly. She actually called my mother up within minutes and said, Faye, what's going on? Did something happen to Lou? And my father had literally just moments before died. And this um, really freaked out my aunt. Again, she, she didn't believe in any of this stuff. and But yet she had this experience, Gene, and I've read other literature about fraternal twins going through this well actually they, they were not not fraternal twins they were uh, fairly identical twins um you know male female but she went through this and and it just it changed her life 
So something's going on. Definitely, definitely something is indeed going on. And what's going to go on now is our first guest. You're in the right. Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV. .net. It's all out of this world. So, Tim, there are people through the years who said there is a hollow earth and that people and or creatures live down there. That's now, correct. Now, you've written a book recently or edited one with regard to Richard S. Shaver, a gentleman who claimed there were entities down there. Can you tell us who Shaver was? Sure. Uh, Richard Shaver was a writer and a, uh, uh, was a contributor to a pulp science fiction magazine from the early 1940s called Amazing Stories. Uh, its editor was a gentleman by the name of Ray Palmer, who later went on to uh, um, start uh, Fate magazine. And uh, Palmer uh, had received a letter from Shaver um, in 1943, I think is when it was. And Shaver claimed to have uh, insider knowledge of an ancient lost alphabet that apparently was the mother of all modern language uh, that, that exists today. And uh, Palmer thought that it was uh, an interesting letter and published it in uh, an issue of Amazing Stories. And the letters from other readers began to pour in. People were just uh, fascinated by this. So Palmer got a hold of Shaver again and asked uh, for more stuff. And uh, Shaver responded with a manuscript called A Warning to Future Man. Now, the original manuscript, as written by Shaver, I guess, was extremely rough. So Palmer went and rewrote it into more of a science fiction story rather than an article and uh, released it in Amazing Stories under the title of I Remember Lemuria. And the basic idea that Shaver had was that um, in pre-deluge times, there was a race of extraterrestrial beings living on planet Earth, and that uh, they, they were the ones that uh, the stories come down to us now as the people who lived in the ancient lands of Atlanta and, and Lemuria. And uh, these uh, elder races lived on planet Earth for um, thousands, possibly uh, uh, several million years. And then the sun became more active and started spewing out uh, radioactive particles, uh, forcing them to, uh, to leave Earth in search of a, uh, of a solar system with a non-radioactive sun. Well, those who remained behind moved underground to uh, try to ride out the uh, solar storms. Uh, in the process, they mutated into creatures that Shaver called Deros, D-E-R-O-S. And the Deros still exist today, living in vast caverns beneath our feet, and they have access, still have access to the wonderful uh, technology that the older 
gods left behind. With this technology, the Deros are responsible for basically just about any kind of bad thing you can uh, uh, lay blame onto them. Uh, wars, horrible plane crashes, uh, some of these uh, uh, mass murderers that just suddenly spring out of nowhere and uh, take a gun and uh, blow away a, 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 a kindergarten class. And uh, these are the result of the Dero shooting uh, rays at us from beneath the earth. Is that, in a sense, to some people, kind of a cop-out, saying there are no evil people if someone <laughs> behaves in an evil fashion? It's because they were <laughs> impregnated by these rays. On the Paracast, by the way, Tim Swartz, who writes books about conspiracy theories and UFOs and everything else, has joined us. So let's look at Richard S. Shaver. Now, some people will say he's just a science fiction writer who made his money writing fiction. Others say he's crazy and maybe a combination of the three. <laughs> possibilities or four possibilities, little elements of craziness, little elements of insight, whatever. Do you have any opinion as to whether Shaver had any handle on anything that was genuine? <laughs> well, you know, the, uh, the Shaver mystery, as it's... Uh known today has always been uh, a fascination of mine ever since I was a kid and first uh, ran across uh, his story in a, uh, in a book by Timothy Green Beckley. And, you know, that's, that is one of the uh, $1 million questions, you know. Do, you know what, what do I believe with, uh, with Shaver? I mean, you might as well ask me, do I believe in uh, UFOs? Yes, I do. <laughs> I think it's possibly like you said. It's it's kind of a combination of uh, all of the above. Um, Shaver definitely, I think, uh, um, did believe in his stories, um, whether or not they're based in a physical reality, as as he would like to think. Uh, Shaver. Uh, a lot of people uh, said that uh, the Deros and the other underground denizens did exist, but they existed in a spiritual plane rather than rather than you know in physical reality. Now Shaver was totally against that idea. Everything that he wrote about, he said, was entirely physical. There was no no supernatural, no ghosts, no spirits, anything like that. The 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 Dero and other underground residents actually existed, and they actually had physical machinery that they used to bombard us uh, surface folk with uh, all kinds of uh, horrible radiation. What proof did he have? He had no proof at all. <laughs> the only, well, uh, he later in his life, he claimed that um, he had proof in the form of what he called rock books, which were uh, crystalline rock that he would slice thin with a bandsaw and polish up real nice. And he said that these were ancient, uh, the remnants of ancient books that, uh, that, the, that these old races that, that lived on the, uh, on the planet had, uh, um, had, had made these books using um, various forms of, well, very similar, I suppose, to you know, what we'd find today with silicon microchips, except these, you know, he, he said that these were you know, physical books with pictures on them and that uh, it would be akin to us finding a, or, or uh, say like a, somebody who had no knowledge of movie projectors and film and finding a film 
with the series of pictures on it. You know, you could tell that there was pictures mm-hmm. of faces and things going on, but you couldn't tell how it actually operated. This is what he said the rock books were. And uh, on these polished pieces of rock, you know, he would find faces and images, and and, uh, and he would he actually uh, painted uh, paintings on uh, on canvas from the projections from these uh, thin slices of rocks. Pretty much akin to uh, seeing images in, um, uh, say, like sliced pieces of wood. Of course, all of this has connections to the infamous H.G. Wells story, The Time Machine. The Deros sound like the Morlocks. They had also little speaking discs that were the history of the Morlocks, and the Morlocks went underground to escape the radiation that was on, on the top of the Earth. So what... What you're describing as the uh, the shaver mystery sounds a lot to me like a retelling of uh, the time machine. Mm-hmm. The the whole idea of uh, creatures living underground is is, is not new. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Wells got his idea from the uh, the old legends that. Every uh, society has has had at one time or the other of uh, creatures, uh, uh, demon spirits that uh, that live underground. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this has come down to us today in our own uh, um, uh, uh, Christian mythos of you know like devils and demons that live underground and torment mankind, you know, from uh, uh, from hell. Yeah. And so it's uh, um, it, it, it's interesting because. Today we have, if you believe in the stories of uh, extraterrestrials coming down from outer space and flying saucers, you know we have the uh, the good guys coming down from space and the bad guys that uh, that live underneath. And it seems like uh, a lot of ancient societies had the same kind of stories. You know, the gods and the uh, the creator beings always came down from the skies, while the uh, the dead and the damned and the demons lived underneath. Underground, sure. That's right. Down where it was hot. <laughs> You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Before our sponsors consider this too hot, I've got to tell you, <laughs> this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're joined by author Tim Swartz, who writes about UFOs, conspiracy theories. And we start our discussion with Richard Shaver and the Shaver mystery. Now, I should tell you, folks, that I knew Shaver. I actually was one of the few people to actually visit him in person and interview him. If you can believe that, it's true. And I thought he was a very pleasant gentleman. He lived probably almost at the edge of poverty. He was living in this small cottage in rural Arkansas, him and his wife. They never had any children, I gather. And he seemed happy enough, although he smoked like a pig, but we don't get into that. And he seemed, like I said, a pleasant character. And the thing I asked him then to explain something that Ray Palmer had said to me, and I also interviewed Ray Palmer, back in the late 60s, which ages me considerably, but I was very, very young, you know. They, they brought me in uh, <laughs> on a stroller, I'm joking. I asked Palmer what he thought of Shaver, and he said that during the time where Shaver claimed he had spent time beneath the surface of the earth with these Deros and the Tiros, the good guys, he was actually in a hospital in some sort of coma. So it was maybe either imaginary or an out-of-body experience. Now, Shaver disputed that, said it was not true. Mm. Well, that's why I asked the question about any kind of physical evidence, and sounds like there was none. No, 
much much like any uh, any of the modern mysteries that uh, that we have today there is uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good stories but uh, very little actual physical evidence uh, you know a lot of people in fact uh, charge that uh, the entire shaver mystery came from the imagination of Ray Palmer and that shaver was basically just a beard well, that I don't think was true. I think Palmer heavily edited the things that Shaver wrote, because if you look at what Palmer wrote and his writing style and you compared it to Shaver's stuff, unvarnished, unedited, certainly Palmer did a lot better in the writing department. So it's quite oh, yeah. possible he took the basis of a story from Shaver and wove it into a traditional 1940s-style pulp science fiction novel. In my book, the reality, Richard Shaver, the reality of the inner Earth, um, we've reprinted a, uh, a number of uh, Shaver's writings, and uh, uh, some of them from the 40s, and then some of them from the uh, 60s and 70s. And there is a uh, there is a clear distinction between the two. Shaver had a tendency to write in a almost uh, a stream of consciousness rant. Right. And, uh, and and a lot of the stories that uh, allegedly were written by him in Amazing Stories were uh, very polished and, and, like you said, very uh, um, uh, 1940s uh, science fiction types of stories. So, I mean, I, I don't think that, there, that there's any dispute that uh, a lot of uh, Shaver's stories, he may have came up with the basic ideas, but somebody else... Uh, did the actual writing and polishing of them. Looking in general, or at the entire picture of Richard Shaver, now this is just one of a number of so-called hollow earth legends. And yep. we have Dr. Raymond Bernard, for example, who had books out 20, 30 years ago. And we have other authors who came out with books through the years. And even Edgar Rice Burroughs' Pellucidor novels were based on the legends and discussions of people living beneath the earth. And as you say, it goes back to biblical times. Now, bringing it to the present day, is it all just legend? Or do you think, Tim, in your own heart and mind, that there's some element of truth to it? Well, I do believe that there is some element of truth to it. Some of the uh, uh, modern stories of the Hollow Earth, which uh, um, started in the uh, in the 19th century, contends, and you know, it, it's, it's still somewhat popular today. Contends that the interior of the Earth is almost completely hollow. That there are openings at the north and south poles and that in the center of the Earth is a small, dimmer sun, which perpetually uh, illuminates the, uh, the underside of the planet. And uh, now, I don't believe that this is true. I, and I'm sure that there would be a lot of people who would uh, happily argue the point with me and, and have all kinds of reasons why they believe it to be true. But, but I don't believe that the entire interior of the planet is hollow. Now, I do believe, and there is a lot of good evidence for this, that there is a vast network of caverns that, uh, that exist uh, underneath our feet that could very well have... Uh, um, uh, part of them were created naturally and, uh, and then added upon by uh, an ancient race or several ancient races. We have a, um, um, a lot of uh, 
uh, a lot of proof that uh, that these caverns exist. Well, uh, of course, as far as we know, nobody has actually gone and uh, traced them from uh, one ends of the earth to the other. But uh, people have discovered uh, in South America at uh, a lot of the uh, ruins there the openings to uh, vast tunnel systems that uh, they'll go in for, for quite a ways, and a lot of times they'll be um, blocked through landslides. Other times they're a maze of uh, one tunnel after another intersecting each other. So nobody can uh, um, really tell just how far they extend, and uh, you know a lot of people contend that uh, that these tunnels exist all across the, the planet. Well, now to take that one further step, mm-hmm. do you think it was just a place for ancient man to hide or shield themselves from the predators outside on the surface, or do you think some advanced civilization was partly responsible for those? caverns. Yes, uh, uh, a little from column A, a little from column B. Originally. All right. You know, of course, the, uh, uh, you know, we have uh, natural cave systems in, the, in limestone that uh, were created by uh, um, surface water running underneath. And, uh, and yes, ancient, uh, ancient man uh, did hide in these from, from the predators. But I do believe that, the, uh, that, that intelligent life Civilization um, uh, have existed on planet Earth a lot further back than uh, modern science uh, would care to admit. And uh, I would say that there has been, if not one, possibly several civilizations that have existed on the planet that uh, for one reason or another have uh, have disappeared and that uh, a number of these caverns were created uh, by them for whatever reason and uh, we're just we're finding now the remnants of them i mean you know possibly you know, thousands maybe uh, more than a million years have passed since they were originally constructed and we're just finding what's basically left of them after this amount of time of course, anything that was constructed on purpose would have the, the traces of, of, of having been constructed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's important to distinguish between a natural formation and, let's say, something where you can show the walls of a cavern that have been affected by a high amount of pressure or heat that ha- ends up in a uniform surface. Um, so that, that's the problem with this discussion, of course, is that there, it's easy to cite examples of natural formations, but when you go to the added uh, sort of distance of saying this has been engineered and constructed, then at the least you would expect to find things like artifacts of that design, if it, it, well, it, even artifacts of the technology used to do that. Any kind of creating any kind of a, a huge cavern would involve, again, a, sort of a directed amount of pressure and heat, and that would create certain, you know, kind of like volcanic rocks are very different from the rocks around them. And then we know that there's been volcanic activity because of the, the dense nature of the rocks that result. And uh, part of the problem also is that there have been, you know, discoveries of uh, what are called volcanic tunnels, and mm-hmm. uh, the, those are uh, smooth-walled caverns that were created by lava flows that, uh, when they were originally discovered, were considered possibly be, uh, to have been uh, um, artificial construction. Um, geologists now uh, believe that, uh, that that the majority of these tunnels, you know, have been were created by lava flows, mm-hmm. and uh, there have been a number of uh, tunnels discovered in South America, like I had said before, around uh, some of the old uh, 
a pyramid of the like uh, Mayas and Incas. And uh, now, of course, uh, uh, a lot of these areas where these tunnels have been discovered are also uh, highly volcanic. So you know, it it is a, a matter of contention whether or not you know we're looking at uh, volcanic tunnels, something that's actually been uh, constructed. You know, an artificial construction by man or, you know, like I said before, a little from column A and a little from column B. And before we go into further columns or <laughs> and even the vertical ones. <laughs> This is the Paracast. You've entered the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Tim Swartz, author of many books, joins us. He's written books about Richard S. Shaver and other books covering hollow earth theories, scientific advancements, conspiracy theories. And speaking of conspiracy theories, we have all these legends of the hollow earth and the possibility that there's some reality to it. Do you think that the governments of this world are engaged in some kind of conspiratorial action to hide the proof of this, or do they just not care? <laughs> well, of course I would love to say, yes, there is. There's a deep, dark conspiracy with government agents who have got uh, alien races hidden in secret tunnels and underground bases out in the desert. But, um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think that uh, there probably are secret underground bases that uh, that have been constructed by uh, various uh, branches of the military. And, uh, well, we know this to be, uh, to be a fact. I mean, there are, um, uh, what is it, Mount Weather out on the... Uh, the East Coast, which is a secret underground uh, um, facility, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that Mount Weather was supposed to serve as like a uh, a second White House and Congress in the event of a uh, of an atomic war. That anybody who could be uh, scrolled or uh, taken away from Washington uh, before the bombs dropped would have been taken to Mount Weather, where they would have continued. Uh, maintaining the government uh, while the bombs dropped around us. So, I mean, we do know that uh, that there are a number of, uh, uh, of, of secret military underground facilities scattered across the country. Now, whether or not it's a conspiracy that they, the government knows that there are underground uh, races that are uh, hell-bent on uh, creating havoc for the service world, nah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, that just uh, I just I don't believe that. At this point, probably liberal anarchists would be considered an underground race, and, That's and right. chances <laughs> are they're buying decommissioned Atlas missile silos and making those into their underground cities because you can actually buy those for like under a million dollars. And there's miles of underground tunnels um, that were all constructed for you know the maintenance and launching of Atlas missiles. And so yeah, there there's your underground uh, theory. Well, I know I know for a fact that there are underground facilities at Wright Patterson Air Force Base sure. in Ohio. I was sure. a uh, I was a photographer at a uh, Dayton um, television. 
television station back in the 80s and uh, uh, saw, at, you know, I mean, just a small portion that the local media was allowed into. But I was told by the uh, press liaison at Wright-Patterson that, uh, you know, Wright-Patterson was crisscrossed underneath with all kinds of, uh, you know, underground uh, tunnels. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure that uh, if they would admit to that, then think about all the ones that are out there that they would never admit to. So I gather you don't subscribe to some of these conspiracy theories. But on the other hand, do you have any feeling with regard to UFOs? Do you believe in UFOs? Because that's one of the things that Richard Shaver talked about. And Ray Palmer claimed that Shaver's writings, either the originals or the ones heavily processed through the Ray Palmer editing machine, predicted the arrival of UFOs. Mm-hmm. And Fate magazine reflected that, the early issues before Palmer left that magazine and it went on to its independent existence. But do you believe any of that's going on? Well, Shaver did uh, um, um, claim that um, his his writings uh, did did predict the the fact that uh, um, there would be, that there are extraterrestrial spacecraft that are visiting planet Earth, and that uh, some of them would you know were you know disc shaped. But then again, you know, long before Shaver, there were science fiction stories that uh, that had illustrations of uh, alien spacecraft that uh, that look remarkably like uh, some of the photographs that we uh, that we see today, uh, allegedly of. Uh, of, of extraterrestrial uh, spaceships flying around in our atmosphere but uh, as and and Shaver also admitted that uh now he said that a lot of the uh, uh UFO sightings that were being made were actually holographic projections from the Dero meant to uh, distract people from something else that was going on you know put a, a UFO in the air and then you know while everyone's looking at that you do something else but you know the UFO phenomena has been going on uh, long before Shaver ever wrote about it or 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 before anybody else. I mean, we've got cave paintings that seem to show uh, disc-shaped uh, objects flying around in the sky, and most of our uh, our, our ancient uh, spiritual texts refer to chariots in the skies or fires in the sky and things like that. Well, that certainly makes a very complicated picture, doesn't it? We could talk another hour about UFOs alone. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. This is the Paracast with David Bienny and Gene Steinberg. I thought David wanted to get the top billing at least one time <laughs> before I cut down his microphone. And we're talking to Tim Swartz, who's written books about UFOs, conspiracy theories, Richard Shaver, lots of other stuff. And obviously, when you write these books, you're writing as a journalist, not necessarily taking a position one way or the other. At the same time, we have government bases. We have the government bases that are located in caves. What about things like Area 51 and the legends or rumors that we're working on top secret things down there that may show more advanced technologies? Forget whether we consider it having an alien origin or a terrestrial origin. Is it possible some of the UFOs we see are just government experimental craft? I would lay very, you know, uh, very good money onto that one, especially in a location like uh, Groom Lake and Area 51. I would say that 
the majority of strange things seen in the skies around that area are secret military aircraft. Area 51 was originally constructed as a, uh, um, a, a CIA base in order to uh, fly the early spy planes out of, and, you know, to, and to have a, uh, a good clear a- airspace above in order to uh, test them out before we uh, sent them over the skies of the former Soviet Union. So I would say that uh, um, the majority of UFO sightings above the skies of the United States and, and possibly elsewhere are the result of secret military aircraft that we have no concept of the types of uh, science and physics that they are using. Somebody stated one time that military science and technology is at least 50 years ahead of what is currently being used by uh, civilians. 50 so, years? Uh, if you consider the, uh, the types of aircrafts that were being flown 50 years ago and you know, stretch your imagination a bit to consider what kinds of developments uh, can happen in 50 years in the future, you know, they could be flying anything from anti-gravity to, I mean, let's really stretch the imagination a bit, but maybe faster than light or faster than time. Well, if they could do faster than light, what are we doing with these failed moon projects and these space shuttles? Why not use some of this technology? Yeah, well, why show your hand? (laughs) Yeah, but to say that the military is 50 years out ahead, I think that's unrealistic. Five years, certainly, maybe even as far as 10 years, especially when it comes to certain types of software and a computer technology, but uh, looking how looking at the kind of job the military is doing over in Iraq right now, <laughs> I, I don't have faith that they're that advanced. I really don't. I've often wondered that myself, uh, considering the the first Gulf War and 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 the current battles in in Iraq. But if you look at the or the original development of With the, the, Black, the Black Hawk spy plane, no, oh, the Black Hawk when it uh, when it came out in the uh, um, the early 1960s, and considering how far ahead the technology was at that time, I mean, allegedly they are still flying that spy plane because we've yet to come up with something better. So uh, that type of technology, more than 40 years old now, you know, I, I do think that, uh, that, that there are possibly, you know, uh, just experimental, but uh, still there is exotic technology being flown around out there. We have people who have seen. Now, of course, if you want to go and say, well, these are extraterrestrial spacecraft that people are, uh, are seen flying in our skies. Uh, take, for instance, the Black Triangle UFOs that people have been seeing since uh, at least the, uh, the, the early 1980s. Uh, I think that this is probably a good example of uh, some kind of exotic technology that is human-constructed and, uh, and, and not uh, an, an extraterrestrial mm-hmm. um, spacecraft. We have, as far as I know, now you know, I'm sure there, there are going to be people who will argue this point with me, as far as I know, we have no good evidence that the planet Earth is being visited by extraterrestrials. I think we have a lot better evidence that, that that there are forms of exotic technology that have been developed by humans and are uh, are being flown in our skies right now. The problem yes. with that I see is that a lot of times we have problems keeping things secret for very long. 
Yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't work very well. Things in the government leak like a sieve. Look at all That's that right. came out about, for example, 9-11 and the Iraqi war just in a couple of years. So we have this super fabulous technology out there. Okay? We have all the super fabulous technology. We have this advanced aircraft. We have faster than light travel, anti-gravity travel, whatever. How come, except for some sightings across the country, none of this is leaked? Well, I, I think that it has leaked, you know, to a certain extent, but that the whole, the whole scenario has been muddied. The waters have been muddied, so to speak, with all of these tales of, uh, of Area 51 having uh, crashed UFOs and alien bodies in the cryogenic tanks underneath, and that, you know, everything has been kind of turned into a big joke. If somebody sees something that is flying around the skies above an Air Force base that looks odd, not a conventionally shaped aircraft, then, you know, people treat it as a joke. Oh, they saw a flying saucer, you know, little green men, that sort of thing. You know, what better way to hide something than to treat it as a joke? And that's the way that uh, UFO sightings have been treated by the mainstream media for a number of years now. So you could hide all kinds of things behind the UFO mystery because it's considered such a joke. Hiding in plain sight almost. That's right. That's okay. right. Well, a lot of the people that get involved like with the UFO realm are marginal people. I mean, the descriptions I'm hearing here of Mr. Shaver was that he was, you know, uh, hitting the vermouth. Uh, it, 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 it's not, the, the, the legitimacy issue is, is a big one, and, and I agree with you, Tim, in that there's a lot of noise out there. The signal-to-noise ratio is not good at this point as far as any kind of paranormal stuff. It's so, And then the indoctrination of things like movies and the media into thinking that these things are just marginal and entertainment entities instead of being any actual kind of, you know, paranormal events. I think that has really clouded people's visions and made it so it's very hard to be objective and in any way scientific. And so that's why there's this emphasis on show us something physical, show us some proof. Stories are just that. They're stories and people have incredibly vivid imaginations. That's right. And it's... Uh any of these subjects that, that we're talking about, uh, when it comes to um, uh, uh, psychic phenomena, UFOs, the Shaver mystery, there is uh, really a lack of good, solid physical evidence. You know, did ha, did Shaver manage ever to uh, to, to catch a Dero and uh, and bring it up? No, you know. I mean, has anybody yeah. ever um, gone down into the hollow earth and taken a picture of the uh, you know? The, uh, the 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 internal sun new no. you know we no. have we have some pictures of ghosts and we have some movie films taken in the former Soviet Union of uh, psychics making matchsticks run across the table and, and really that's been about that's been about it we basically we have to take these people for their word and uh, you know it, it it's up to all of us to uh, decide for ourselves if we uh, who we want to believe or if sure. we believe everyone or believe no one hey Tim we're just about out of time but I want to to ask you to tell our listeners where can they learn more about the stuff you write about. Well, you can uh, visit my website. It's uh, www.conspiracyjournal.com. 
and uh, we've got all kinds of uh, books and interesting articles, and they can also sign up for our uh, free weekly newsletter, uh, also called Conspiracy Journal, and uh, it comes out uh, every week, and uh, it's just full of all kinds of uh, interesting stories and articles from uh, all the uh, newspapers and television stations from uh, across the planet, you know, anything uh, weird and wonderful that uh, they don't want you to know about. You'll find it in the Conspiracy Journal. And you will help us know about it. And next time, Tim, we have to talk about Tesla, a guy who is a real story about a, a real person whose inventions we use every day and the things that are known and maybe not as well known about him. And we could do, you know, an, uh, an entire separate <laughs> show on Tesla alone. Yeah. Well, that's something that I think we're going to definitely have to consider. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thank Tim. you very much. Glad to be on. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at Mr. UFO at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Well, that was an interesting conversation. What do you think? I don't know. Well, I like the fact that Tim Swartz is trying to be more realistic about it. I do yeah. question that statement he made, though, that over at Area 51, they are testing technologies that are 50 years ahead of the rest of us. And I would think if that was the case, we'd see a lot more examples of that in our technology. I mean, why do we have to wait, for example, all these years to get man back on the moon if we have all this technology going around? So that was a little bit over the top. I mean, he did say some things that were very interesting, and I frankly have never come to a final conclusion about Richard S. Shaver. And the same is true, by the way, about our next guest, Tim Beckley. Tim Beckley is the publisher of Conspiracy Journal, so he works with Tim Swartz. We got the double Tims, as we said, or Tim Squared or something like that. But Tim is no square. He's a very interesting character, and he was dubbed Mr. UFO some years back. And before we progress with anything else, I want to find out why he did that, so we're going to ask Tim Beckley about why he has been named Mr. UFO, and no, it's not because he is an alien being. Does he get royalties for that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack, Attack of the 
the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. Tim, I'm going to start this interview by asking what might either be a logical or sensible question, or maybe just a silly one, and that is, how did you get the name Mr. UFO? Actually, you know how I got the name, Gene? Ace Freely. You know, Ace Freely is a guitar player for Kiss. Really? Well, yes. Well, you know, uh, in fact, the uh, February issue of Fate magazine has a, a feature article coming out, which will it's an interview with me and a few other people in the field about the UFO rock and roll connection. Uh, anyway, um, uh, uh, being a, a, a local promoter of uh, bands in the New York City area, this goes back quite a few years, uh, I got to meet um, quite a few of the uh, musicians. And uh, Kiss was just starting out at that time. They were playing some of the same clubs where I was booking bands into. And they had just gotten a contract with, I believe it was Casablanca Records. Uh, anyway, I'd run into Ace and some of the bars and the clubs and so forth and so on, and he could never remember my name, but he could always remember uh, the affinity to uh, UFOs. So he would call me Mr. UFO, and I guess that's kind of, I just figured, well, that's as good as anything else that I can think of. In fact, Ace had a, a number of UFO sightings in his career, as have a number of uh, celebrities. Uh, he told me this uh, story about how he was seated in an airplane one time on his way from New York to California, looking out the window, and there was this glowing orange object of some kind that went right by the window. But apparently nobody else in the plane uh, saw it. Anyway, that's that's how the term Mr. UFO came about, and I figure it's like it's it's worth holding on to. Well, we should point <laughs> yeah. out that Ace Freely and Kiss was the space alien character. That's that right. Was his persona. Uh-huh. That's yeah, right. You're right. Yeah. And I also understand that a UFO. Uh, uh, there's a, a book by Michael Luckman that came out a couple of months ago that I'm in quite a number of times mentioned in. Uh, talks about uh, Ace's uh, sighting or a close encounter, I guess, of the second kind, uh, witnessing a UFO that landed uh, on his property, uh, his estate in Westchester. And that would have been maybe about five or six years ago. This wasn't after he was drinking something at the time, was it? I would not swear on anything that that wasn't the case, but who knows? With rock and roll musicians, of course, you sometimes <laughs> see that. But, you know, you know, you know, UFOs are not something, you know, people talk about, yeah, you know, drugs and, and alcohol. And that, but I don't know as if people are prone to see. First of all, I, I you know, I've drank a few <laughs> at the times of my career. Usually you pass out, you're not prone to seeing things, unless maybe you're up for, you know, two or three days or something like that. So I, I don't I don't think most people hallucinate UFOs not on their not on their alcohol certainly you know maybe magic mushrooms <laughs> on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney we're proud to welcome Tim Beckley Mr. UFO now Tim you've been involved in this sort of thing for a number of years you started very young I'm not going to say you're very old now but you've been doing it for what 40 45 years how did you get started well you know actually um I had uh, a number of paranormal experiences uh, uh, when I was uh, fairly young. Uh, we had a uh, poltergeist phenomena in our home in New Jersey. And when I was 10 years old, I had my first of three UFO sightings. Uh, it was a warm summer evening in July or August. And in those days, there wasn't any uh, air conditioning. We're talking around about 1956, 1957. I mean, there certainly not. Most people didn't have it. Out on the stoop, so to keep cool, you sit out on the front uh, porch of the stoop. Uh, you know, and, and so I was out there one evening, and a couple of people with my, I guess my mother and maybe a few neighbors, somebody come running up uh, to where we were and pointed out two objects in the sky. One was over an abandoned factory building that was directly across the street, and one seemed to be hovering directly above our home. 
And these things uh, were visible, I, I would say, for a period of maybe uh, 15 minutes or so. I, I can't tell you that I saw any little green men waving from the window. I didn't see any landing gear. Didn't even really see a structure. It, it was a, a very bright light just above the, uh, the low uh, in clouds. Uh, eventually, the uh, object across the street blinked out as if somebody had turned off a light switch, and the other one continued rotating up above uh, for some time after that. And we got lost interest, I guess, and, and went inside. Now, the next day, there was a little item in the newspaper to the effect that other people had uh, witnessed this, but uh, the authorities, whoever they might have been, uh, were saying that it was nothing more unconventional than a weather balloon. Well, even at the ripe age of 10 or so, I, I could tell <laughs> that this was not a weather balloon. It was something that seemed to be acting under uh, at least a minimum degree of intelligent control. It wasn't something that was bobbing and weaving in the uh, in the air current. So I wrote a letter to the local newspaper, a letter to the editor, and people started to contact me about their experiences in the uh, New Jersey metropolitan area there. And suddenly I was being called upon to appear on ro- uh, local radio stations like WCTC uh, in New Brunswick. Ten years old, really? Well, th- this would have been uh, ma- this would over a period of from ten to fourteen. Huh. Uh, I, I would say by by fourteen, I had purchased my first mimeograph machine, and I was putting out a, a, a newsletter called the Interplanetary News Service Report. In fact, I do believe that Gene and I exchanged uh, newsletters at uh, at about that uh, point because Gene was also uh, editing a, a publication that was perhaps a little bit uh, slicker than mine, had uh, less uh, typographical errors, as I recall, because <laughs> he always made a point of that. <laughs> <laughs> always, 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 yes, indeed. Uh, but uh, the, uh, so it kind of just blossomed from there. And then um, when I was about uh, 16, I had my first book published. It was uh, The Shaver Mystery and the Inner Earth, and it was published by Gray Barker's Sosirian Press. And one thing just kind of snowballed from there to another, and I started a mail order business selling books through the mail, which I still do uh, today. And uh, I've edited over 30 different uh, publications over the uh, years, not all of them uh, UFO related. I've been editor of magazines like Front Page Disasters and Moped Action and Pops, uh, Rock and Roll Pop Star and a soap opera magazine and a football magazine. And in between them, uh, in between the, those, I, I actually uh, probably did five or six, maybe seven different magazines that were sold worldwide on the newsstand related to paranormal phenomena. Probably the best known would be uh, UFO Universe, which lasted uh, for 11 years. Now, did I hear you say one of those publications was called Front Page Disasters? That's correct, yes. Uh huh. So I, I'm also somewhat of an authority on uh, disasters. Not as much as I would be on UFOs, but I was also the editor of Moped Action. And let me tell you, there's a lot of action on a moped. <laughs> that, that that particular that particular publication lasted one issue. One but issue. I, I, yeah, yeah. I was uh, yeah. I was packaging magazines is is what I was doing for yeah. uh, different publishers who didn't want to hire an editorial staff because they probably realized in their uh, heart of hearts that the magazines were not going to last that uh, long. In those days, unlike today, it was fairly easy to get a magazine distributed and to live off the advances from uh, wholesalers and distributors. Uh, today, it's quite uh, different. Of course, uh, yeah. it's. Uh, Next to impossible to get a small uh, publication uh, out into the marketplace unless you have a lot of advertising and you're uh, willing to lose money on the actual newsstand sales. But anyway, that, that's, that was the start of my literary career. And uh, today I also make uh, uh, low-budget horror movies. 
I am known in that uh, profession as Mr. Creepo. We keep the Mr. in front of everything. Right. So you're going head-to-head with people like Roger Corman. Well, that would be more correct. I, I would say that the Roger Corman is a little bit higher budget okay. than ours. Uh, in fact, uh, we are distributed, uh, we just signed a contract this week out here in Phoenix by a, a movie company known as Brain Damage Films. <laughs> just want to clarify one point here. You're not suggesting or insinuating that the people who have encounters with UFOs and paranormal phenomena of all kinds are necessarily brain damaged, are you? <laughs> I think it's fair to say that Tim is a well-rounded gentleman that is involved in a lot of businesses, and this is just one of them. Well, thank you for that compliment, Gene. Uh, no, I mean, we, we know that, you know, and, and the thing is, Tim, what you have to understand, that in this show, I'm sort of, my role, I think, is to be the somewhat more skeptical party, just oh, in terms of... Oh, that's you know, fine. Uh-huh. We, we assume that some, you know, there's a lot... There's been so many sightings, yes. Yes. certainly in terms of UFOs over the years. Uh-huh. And even if you assume that some double-digit percentage uh-huh. is, you know, nonsensical, it still leaves some amount of question about certain episodes that we simply... I mean, what I'll say is that, well, there's some stuff that's happened that we simply uh-huh. don't have any answers that's for. We true. don't well, know what happened. That That is true. And, and I'm the first to say that I, I do not consider myself a... Um, uh, fanatic. In fact, if anything, that's kind of why I'm trying to point out all these other things that I do. It's something that has intrigued me because it has touched uh, me uh, personally. But I have I have other interests, and, and every strange uh, object in the sky or on the ground certainly is not from Alpha Centauri or, or somewhere else in space. In fact, my theory is is I've kind of gone deeper into this and and, and I heard uh, all the stories and been involved in investigating uh, many cases and all. I'm convinced that if there are visitors here from other planets that they are the minority of UFO sightings, not necessarily the majority. In fact, when we say UFO, what do we really mean? We mean unidentified. Unidentified, how, right. how do you How do you know what's inside the craft? Unless, you're, of course, you're psychic or a channel or, or, or something to that effect. And then there's real, very little evidence, really, to, to prove that in a scientific sense. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in tune with the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Our guest today is Tim Beckley, known by many people as Mr. UFO. And as we can see, he's a person who has explored these subjects from many points of view. Now, through all the years, we've been trying to get a handle on this UFO problem, about the things that people see in the skies or landed or maybe have close encounters with alleged aliens. But we haven't seemed to have gotten a handle on what's going on. Probably not. You know, Gene, I, I would have to, and, and I, I'm an optimist, but I, I, I guess as far as UFOs go, I, I would have to agree with you. Uh, I don't think we've come uh, too much further than uh, in the early 1950s. In fact, I would say that in those days, perhaps we had a little less information to confuse us. Now, over the years, with all the hoaxes that have been committed, uh, the misinformation from governmental uh, sources, including the CIA, uh, that uh, probably there is more of a a stigma of confusion uh, 
revolving around the subject than ever before. UFOs are unidentified. I do believe that the weight of evidence shows that some of these objects are intelligently controlled. Where they originate from, it's impossible for me to say. Uh, I do believe that when we speak of UFOs, we're speaking of a lot of different things. I don't think that it's uh, one particular anomaly, that it must be more than one. I do think that uh, probably only a minute fraction of the uh, craft that have been seen are really from other planets. I would think that uh, many more of them are either made here on this planet by either some governmental source or by some secret source, uh, and uh, some of them are of a natural phenomena uh, nature. We have a lot of these uh, ghost lights, what are called ghost lights, spook lights, that are seen in various parts of the country, and these have been seen for uh, literally uh, decades, if not uh, centuries. In fact, Gene, have you not been to Brown Mountain, North Carolina? Yes, I was there at least 20 years ago. Uh, What's think, Brown Mountain? Well, Brown Mountain is in the um, mountains of North Carolina. It's a spot where if you pull your car off the road on, on a given night, I won't say every night, in fact, I understand that in recent years the phenomenon is kind of at a low ebb, people see these strange glowing objects maybe two to four feet in diameter that come up from the mountains. Uh, they pop up into the air, and then they would go back into the mountains or back into the ground. Uh, in fact, Gene, I don't know if you... There's a gentleman by the name of uh, uh, Warren, Joshua Warren, who lives out there. In fact, he has a radio show every uh, Saturday night, and he's the local uh, expert on uh, on the Brown Mountain Lights, and he's actually taken uh, a video footage now of what appear to be the lights, and they are spooky. But what they are, I don't think they're from uh, from outer space, but it's some natural phenomena that's closely related to the Earth's environment, yet they do seem to be under intelligent control. I'm not talking about swamp gas or will-o'-wisp. I'm talking about something that seems to be part of our atmosphere, but that it does have a, a, a mentality of some type, because it knows when you're getting... Cl- uh, many people, in fact, when I went down there and investigated this uh, quite a few years ago with Associate Jim Mosley, uh, people would describe to us their experiences, and they'd say that they would walk within maybe 10 or 15 feet of the objects, and then the object would disappear that was in front of them, usually a glowing mass, maybe with a little orange or red tint to it, and they would turn around and the object would appear in back of them. But they felt... That that the object was, had the capability of reading their thoughts and knew their movements. Mm. So, so some of these things, uh, they're, they're not all from outer space. I, I do believe people ask me, what do I think about uh, abduction experiences? People who say that they've been taken on board UFOs and examined, uh, given physical exams uh, by extraterrestrials, usually by these little gray creatures with the almond-shaped black eyes. And uh, I, I say, well, I don't think there have been really many of these uh, cases. Some of them, uh, most of them actually, these stories have come out under hypnosis, and we know that uh, uh, stories under hypnosis can be uh, exaggerated, and the, uh, the mind is uh, capable of conjuring up different uh, images and, and so forth, sometimes based on... Uh, past experiences. I think there have been a handful of abduction experiences that may be true. Uh, Betty and Barney Hill would be uh, probably one of the ones that I would uh, put the most uh, faith in. Uh, Travis Walton, the uh, Arizona a um, fellow who was a logger who was out cutting trees one day who was hit by a blue beam of light and snowflake, disappeared for five days and then found uh, later on in a different part of the state who apparently had some uh, UFO experience. And, of course, there was a movie, Fire in the Sky, that's often played on the Sci-Fi Channel about his uh, 
purported uh, abduction. So there are a handful of maybe legitimate UFO abductions. I would say the others are uh, induced by uh, hypnosis. They're planted in the psyches of the people by the hypnotists. Like I know, well, I've, I've I, well, that would be that would be an extreme case. I, I don't think that they're planted per se, but people yeah. may have an image in their mind. Uh, they may have had a UFO sighting. They may have had, even seen some sort of shadowy form. But if you go to a hypnotist and you think that you've been abducted by uh, aliens, then that's probably the story that you're going to uh, create under uh, hypnotic conditions. Right. See, because I look at this, like and you that. look at all of the commercialization of the UFO phenomenon. I mean, we've, you know, we look at the movies that have been made, uh, certainly Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oddly enough, I was living in Venezuela at the time that that movie was released, and it was huge down there because people had been, uh-huh. the people down there had been accustomed to some rather odd UFO experiences, so that movie was very well received. But between that and um, all of the stuff that's that's come after it, one has to sort of assume that some of this sort of what I'm calling planting of ideas in people's minds. I mean, people consume media so voraciously that uh, you'd have to believe that these movies and and the fact that this phenomenon has been turned into a source of entertainment, really, um, has both influenced people's belief in it and I think also has really given skeptics a lot of fuel to say, well, you know, this is all silly because look at how it's been commercialized. Uh, you know, you know, it's funny though. This, most of the skeptics might ha- might might as well be professional ufologists because these people harp on these things mainly because they want to get a little bit of public attention uh, as well skeptics very seldom actually investigate anything they very seldom if ever speak to witnesses they 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 just like the attention that it, it garners and saying that it's all you know a nonsense or 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 hogwash i i don't think the typical ufo witness is lying or, or creating a hoax. There are some, uh, of course, you have these uh, crop circles that have uh, appeared uh, throughout England and here in the United States even. And, and I, I would say a good portion of those, if not 90%, are probably uh, created by human, human, human beings in the middle of the night looking for a little... Um, Attention! I don't think the average UFO witness is lying about this because, uh, first of all, there still is kind of a, a, a stigma attached to being a UFO a witness. You, you certainly, right. you know, become turned into a, a drunk or a, a nut or a lunatic or, or something like uh, that. Certainly, I don't think it's as bad as it was in, in years uh, past. But uh, skeptics don't really have their uh, the, their finger on the pulse of what's what's going what's going on because they never really, you know, it, they have a preset idea that this. Is is all nonsense and that there's nothing uh, to it and, and there's nothing you could possibly do to change their mind so why even try as far as the entertainment aspect of it well you know actually ufos are entertaining the one thing that keeps my attention over the year uh, over the years is the bizarre nature of all of this if it was just cut and dry uh, the, the sightings of lights in the sky like the phoenix lights right. uh, we might be a little bit uh, bored by it by now but it, it certainly is the the weird bizarre twists and tails and the the peculiar cases that to crop up from time to time that would keep us uh, interested uh, in, in this. And I don't think today really that there are too many hoaxes uh, going on. Uh, uh, may, maybe misidentifications, but not hoaxes. Tim, what do you know about the um, situation that's been going on in the 90s down in Mexico specifically? 
there's been quite a bit of video documentation coming out of Mexico City in what appears to be probably, I mean, very likely the most significant modern UFO flap. Have you done any research into the Mexico City situation? Well, I, 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 did, I, I did do an interview with uh, Jaime Mossad, who is the uh, the journalist mm-hmm. down there, the, uh, they say the equivalent to Mike Wallace. He had a, at one time a a uh, regular uh, a TV show, sort of like right. 60 Minutes. Right. And, and, and I, you know, again, there are many, many sightings by hundreds, if not thousands of people down there. And you look at the, the evidence, and it seems like everybody has a video camera aimed at the sky. Some of them are legitimate UFOs. Some are flotillas of balloons and other natural phenomena. It's hard to say. You've entered another dimension. Let's hold that thought. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Our special guest is Tim Beckley, known to many people as Mr. UFO, and he's been involved in these subjects for more than 40 years. Now, looking at all the many cases that you've investigated, all the many cases that you have written about, is there one case that stands out? Is there one case that you can point to and say, this is a UFO, this is possibly something from another planet? Well, the best case that I've actually investigated firsthand, and I, I wrote this up for a UFO Report magazine, which was a publication that Saga, the men's adventure magazine, put out years ago. This would have been in the late 70s, probably, and it's recently reprinted in my book, a Strange Saga. It's available on Amazon.com. It involves a, um, a, a Wyoming hunter by the name of uh, uh, Higdon, Carl Higdon. Uh, he had taken off of work one day and had gotten into his pickup truck and was going out uh, elk hunting. He got to a, a grassy knoll, he parked his vehicle, and he walked further into the wooded area. Uh, just as he, he hit the top of uh, one of the grassy knoll there, he happened to see something that looked like a, a square box in the field. And next to it was... Uh, kind of a strange-looking uh, creature. So he had hair kind of like a punk rocker or, or, or bristles or something standing up. Anyway, he, he had uh, before I guess he had seen this uh, craft. He had uh, tried to shoot one of the uh, one of the elk, one of the elk there, and the bullet had come out of the uh, the rifle in slow motion and seemed to have hit some sort of invisible uh, partition or force field and. He had a, he retained later on retained the shell and and deposited it at the sheriff's office and I've seen photographs of the shell that seems to be the bullet casing whatever it is that seems to be twisted inside out. Uh, also to his vehicle uh, later on he apparently was taken inside the craft taken to somewhere else he doesn't know whether it was another planet or not but he was taken out he was able to see. Uh, through some windows what appeared to be perhaps an alien city or another culture, although he did say in addition to these beings, there also looked like there were a number of humans down there. He was taken into a room, I believe he was given a physical examination. When he came to, he was in the front seat of his uh, vehicle, the truck that he had driven out to, uh, the grassy knoll. The vehicle had somehow teleported or moved itself into a marshy area. He had to call... Uh, a towing company to come and they had a very difficult time getting the the vehicle even uh, out of this uh, marshy uh, area they said it was very unlikely that he would have been able to have driven it to that spot also he had had uh, 
a scar on his, his uh, lung and some other physical conditions. And when they took him to the hospital, uh, they found that these uh, conditions were no longer there. The scar and all had disappeared. And there was a lot of other evidence to this as well. So I, I would say that's probably the investigation took me... Oh, I don't know, the, the, the days of conversations on the telephone and transcribing the tape and uh, getting copies of the doctor's report and so forth and so on. And, and I did do quite an extensive uh, article on it, which is reprinted in the Strange Saga uh, book. But that, I would say, is certainly the most evidence because there's some physical evidence there. There's the casing of the bullet. Uh, there's the fact that the, the vehicle had been moved to somewhere where it had been difficult to have driven to that area, and the fact of the medical the changes in his medical uh, condition. And there were other, uh, other witnesses who had seen peculiar lights in that area, I think the night before, the night after, or around the same time. Uh, the best flap, I would say, now that's the best individual sighting, uh, the best flap that kind of piqued my uh, interest took place in Warminster, England in the 1970s. In fact, a good friend of mine was the late uh, Earl of Clancarty, Brinsley Laporte Trench, and he uh, had invited me to speak at the House of Lords. There was a special UFO committee uh, made up of members of uh, British Parliament, and I flew over there at my own expense and delivered a two-hour a lecture and program seminar or workshop, whatever you want to call it, about the UFOs and the data that proved that there was something behind the, the phenomenon. And after I had finished speaking at the House of Lords, I took a little side trip and went out to uh, uh, Warminster, which is fairly near Stonehenge, is probably maybe about 10 or 15 miles away, little uh, rural uh, community. And uh, the fellow there who was the editor of the Daily Newspaper was a gentleman by the name of uh, Arthur Shuttlewood, who had uh, started out as a skeptic when the sightings first started coming in, but over a period of maybe a, a year or two of a nightly sky watching, well, at one point there were hundreds of uh, people out there uh, in, the, in the field looking at these objects up in the sky which could not be identified. Some of them uh, very close range. In fact, there was a fellow there by the name of Bob Strong, uh, Robert Strong, who was a retired uh, pilot for the British uh, Air Force who had a whole scrapbook, I mean literally dozens if not hundreds of photographs of all these anomalous uh, objects seen in the sky and some of them looked like Batman I mean they were weird looking things and you could tell they, they, they were not hoaxes I mean this wasn't the Adamski type of you know, UFO uh, hung on a fishing wire or something like we that. Sh- let me interrupt for a second a lot of our listeners don't know what or who George Adamski was so could you explain before we pick up on the rest of your discussion just who was George Adamski, and what is his association with UFOs? Oh, my goodness. Well, no, that's, uh, that's another story. Uh, George Adamski was one of the early UFO contactees. Uh, back in the early 1950s, there were several dozen individuals running around, usually the state of California, who claimed that they had actually had face-to-face contact and telepathic communication with the Space Brothers. The Space Brothers were human-looking UFOs, looked like pretty much you, uh, you and I, the type of beings that could literally walk amongst us. And Adamski was uh, claimed that he had met on the California desert, and his uh, evidence were uh, footprints that had been left in the in the soil, and they made plaster pairs cast uh, of them, and also photographs of a variety of the ships that he had uh, reportedly seen, and he did have some witnesses to this. Uh, There are some people who think that the whole thing was concocted, uh, and some people who believe in him entirely, and some people like me who think there might have been a little bit of truth, that maybe some of the photographs were legitimate, but that a lot of the stories were just uh, exaggerated. Thanks. Okay, let's go back to that other case you're talking about. Okay, so Warminster, England, certainly no contactees like a 
Adamski there, but legitimate people uh, all from all over the village, all walks of life, bankers, salesmen, housewives, you name it, they were going out there to, to see these objects on almost a nightly basis. Now, when I got there, uh, the main flap was kind of already, the sightings had sort of decreased and uh, interest was kind of uh, waning at that point. But I did go into the field with uh, this uh, area known as Star Hill, uh, near a military base probably maybe about two, three uh, uh, miles outside of town, but no lights at all. No far lights from farmhouses, no street lamps, nothing of that uh, sort. And I uh, was out there, saw a couple of me- falling so shooting stars, meteorites flying over. Very nice skylight. It's beautiful to be out there in the middle of the night, very quiet. A lot of crickets, maybe. Uh, all of a sudden, we happened to look up into the sky, and I can't tell you what altitude uh, this was, but there was an object maybe the size of a basketball, maybe a little bit smaller. And Arthur says, look, 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 this is one of the craft. Well, I wasn't overly impressed. It's a light in the sky. Again, I couldn't, it wasn't a satellite because it wasn't moving. It wasn't a street lamp because it was almost directly overhead and there were no street lamps. Uh, I couldn't identify it. It was a UFO. Anyway, Arthur says, let me go to the uh, to the trunk of the car, my vehicle, and, and, and bring out a flashlight. Well, he brought out a fairly large torchlight. And he says, often when you try to signal to the object, these things will respond. So sure enough, we're blinking. It wasn't Morse code or anything. We just blink, 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 blink. Every time we would blink the torchlight at the, uh, the object, it, it almost looked like a marionette was up in the sky because the object would do loops and kind of move around and, 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 and zigzag. Uh, around, uh, I guess we watched it for maybe ten or fifteen minutes, and then uh, cloud clouds came by and covered up the object. We never did see it after that. But this was something that appeared to be uh, responding to us uh, in an intelligent manner. Uh, I, manner. I, I don't know where it it came from. It didn't particularly look like something from another planet, but I, I don't know where it was from or, or what it was. But it did seem to be able to pick up uh, on us being there. I knew it was. It was. We were there. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And our guest is Tim Beckley, known as Mr. UFO, has been involved in the strange, the unknown, the paranormal for over 40 years now. And you can tell he hasn't lost his enthusiasm for the subject. We're talking now about the definitive UFO cases. Now, if I were still involved in the subject, and there are organizations like MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, what steps should I take in order to get answers? There have been congressional hearings, and of course they weren't of much help. What do you think can and should be done in order to find out what's going on? Well, I, I, you know, Gene, I, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't really tell you to be honest with you. I mean, we've got photographs galore. We've got cases where these things have apparently landed uh, and left uh, burn marks in the uh, in the ground. There's some kind of patterns. We have people who claim that they've had uh, the contact with these these beings. Some of them uh, apparently people say that they've actually got inside the, the craft. There seems like there's so many. Any sightings that additional sightings isn't really going to do very much to to prove the uh, to prove the case. I think that whoever is behind the UFO sightings does not want to be identified, or they would have come forth 
and presented themselves in a manner that we could comprehend. I believe that this is an ages-old mystery that has been uh, with us since the beginning of time. It is responsible for many of the legends and folklores, uh, some of the of a religious uh, nature uh, that has sprung up over the over the uh, centuries. It has remained a perplexing mystery, and unless they really want to be identified and to alert us to who they are and why they are here and where they are coming from. I don't know as if we will ever have a satisfactory answer, but that's what keeps the mystery alive. Well, you know, um, there are a few thoughts about that. I mean, in, in the age of Photoshop and the proliferation of digital effects, I think one of the things that's now become very difficult is to produce photographic or video evidence that's compelling because it's so easy to falsify. Of course, the flip side of that is that one of the things I had hoped would happen with the proliferation of things like Photoshop is that more people would turn to old, old photographs and do image analysis on them to figure out whether or not... And that doesn't work. That, that doesn't work. Let me tell you this. Yeah. You, can, you can take a, a UFO photograph and give it to, to, to three photo, uh, so-called photo analysis experts, and you'll get three different explanations. You know, you know I, I mean, I've seen it done with UFO photographs where right. one so-called expert will say this is a bona fide object and the next one will say it's a shadow or it's a hubcap thrown into the air. How can you tell? And, and as for, you know, the, the, the computer, uh, well, most UFOs that have been seen and photographed have not been uh, of that clear of a nature, the more of a light phenomenon, right. because they're right. traveling, probably traveling pretty fast. I, I would I would say maybe entering this dimension or time zone or something like that. I would say the clearer the, the photograph, the better likelihood that it is that it might be that a fake. Probably a fake but, but again, it, the, whole, the whole thing is, is that photo analysis proves nothing because you can just have as many, you know, photo people look at photos and everybody's got their own different opinion, you know? Well, I think at that point, then, it comes down to, well, we have the problem of physical evidence, which is thus just that. I mean, you were talking about that case where there was. I, I would be fascinated to see that bullet that it turned oh, sure. right out. Well, you uh, know, I, um, I could send you a copy of the article and so forth. Yeah, no, I'd love to uh -huh. see that. Um, I think one of the things, though, is that we're, we live in a time when people, I think you actually identified something, Tim, that people are overwhelmed by the amount of information. If you go on the Internet and start looking for UFO stuff, you realize that there is so much information out there, and it's become hard, whether we're talking about UFOs or anything, really, to, to, to have people become clearer thinkers and, mm. and to have them be more adept at looking at information, trying to boil some truth down from it. We, we, we are so affected by the media as far as being critical thinkers or losing the critical thinking ability. I think that... Um, the only way we're going to get some, some real answers, I've always believed that if the government has nothing to hide, they should release every single file they have. They haven't, and to me, that's one thing I find mm -hmm. very odd. Well, um, I, I think that the uh, one of the reasons, uh, several reasons why the government has not released this um, yeah. uh, information. First of all, it would prove their ignorance, because I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of this that they have no idea what it means either. That would also uh, lead to the fact that uh, these objects can come and go at their own pace, of their own free will. There have been numerous cases.
case where they have uh, actually uh, uh, clogged our uh, the, the missile systems, preventing them from taking off or misfiring. Uh, they, they've appeared on, on radar, of course, have been chased by pilots of all different uh, descriptions all over the planet. These things are capable of doing maneuvers and creating a phenomena that is vastly different than anything that we have here. And how is the government ever going to explain that to most people who are on a nine-to-five time clock? <laughs> so they wouldn't want to reveal information because it would show that they were perhaps incompetent? Uh, that's the reason. That's <laughs> the reason that they don't want to show. Uh, they release a lot of information on a lot of different subjects. That's and we know how incompetent, that. we do know how incompetent they are capable of being. Well, well there, goes my, there goes my phone wire tap again. <laughs> <laughs> Carnivore lives. Uh, no, but see, then, 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 of course, what happens is that Let's for a moment. I'll play the devil's. Ad- well, I won't play the devil's advocate because you guys don't dare, don't dare play the devil around us, creeper. Huh? <laughs> well, the thing is, if there were some sort of more advanced being involved in this, as far as I'm concerned, they'd have no benefit to revealing themselves. Why would they? You know, it's back to the old thing. Does the scientist watching the ants care about whether the ants realize the scientist is watching them? Mm-hmm. I, I have to assume that. If there were beings that were advanced, that were visiting this planet, there'd be no benefit to revealing their presence to us. In fact, there'd be a lot of disadvantages, and clearly... That's uh, surely the case. If humans have proved one thing, is that they're not very mature beings. You know, we like to think of ourselves as these greatly evolved beings, but here we are involved only, in wars. That, that, would only, that would only include the three of us, certainly. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to make. I'm going to assume that we know what we're talking about. Okay, we can't forget my son, and my wife. Okay, okay. Right. Well, that lets up until it does. Okay, and my beautiful girlfriend is, is also very yes. smart. Yes. But, <laughs> but so, so the thing is, you know, as far as knowing the truth, you know, there's that that line from that movie. Can you handle the truth? I mean, I, I think most of our society, and, and one of the things we haven't talked about, Tim, is the American perception of this versus other countries. You know, how do Europeans view this? How do South Americans view this? Americans are very whacked out in their belief system. The fact that we have a debate in this country going on about this intelligent design silliness, I think it kind of underscores that we, we as, a, as a culture, we are very much into, into denial. And whether it's denial about our own state, denial about what we're doing in the world, denial about our own insecurities, I don't know that at this point our society, if the truth was revealed, could really handle the truth. Really, right. what do you think? Well, maybe some people could, and maybe some people could. It's hard to say. I think that part of the population maybe has heard enough about UFOs or into new age concepts and the college and all that that they might be able to handle this. Other people can't handle walking to the bus stop. Yeah. So, I mean, that was one of the things that the government uh, kind of uh, said in the earlier days. They had hired the Brookings uh, Institute to uh, uh, do a study of this, and, and they said that it would change everything from uh, religion, our, our concept, our concept of, uh, of God and the universe, and so forth and so on. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it would certainly would have a, a pretty nasty uh, impact. On, on all of this. That's my thinking. Yeah. Well, with government, we can't really rely on them for anything, can we? Well, we can rely on them to make bad choices. <laughs> and, and, and to increase our taxes. Uh, and, and to make and to make more laws. Hey, now we're getting into the politics of the situation. Well, you know, UFOs, UFOs are a political issue. And some people have made them uh, that, of course. Stephen Greer, who's actually trying to lobby uh, congressmen and senators to release, so get, get the government to release 
least some of this information. Right. And, and certainly UFOs, the ramification of the life on other planets or, or other kind of strange phenomena that can't be explained, certainly would have a, a, a tremendous uh, in, impact on, on religion and, and culture and, and politics. Okay, Tim, I wanted to focus on one more thing before we let you go on this interview, okay? You're actually going to take these handcuffs off in a minute? Well, I've asked David to get ready, but actually there's a timer in effect on it. You see, that's the problem. <laughs> I'm here for three more shows. Is that what you're trying to say? Okay, Tim, just be patient. Just be patient. We've heard scientists talking about what they call a multiverse, a multiverse being a multiple number of dimensions, universes, whatever. So maybe we have parallel realities. Maybe there's a David Biedney, Gene Steinberg, and Tim Beckley right now doing something else in a parallel universe at this very time. Have you thought that maybe UFOs are jumping in and out of realities here? Yeah. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Uh, in fact, I believe you had on one of our authors not too long ago, Tim Schwartz, who uh, wrote a book on uh, time travel, co-authored a book on time travel. Yes, I do believe some of these things could be from our future or from parallel uh, universes, but how do you prove it? Again, the only thing you can really prove is to say that people have seen, experienced, and exchanged energies with some creative force that is not part of our normal existence. What this is, we really don't know. And I'm the first, even as Mr. UFO, people say, well, you're Mr. UFO, what are the answers? And I say, you know, UFOs act independently of my thinking, <laughs> even, even my thinking. Um, well, I suppose they just won't pay attention. Okay, if someone wants to learn more about the things you do, Mr. UFO Tim Beckley, where do they go? Conspiracy Journal, that's one word, conspiracyjournal.com. That would be the best way. And if you want to email me uh, and interrupt my privacy, it's Mr. UFO, MR, UFO at, <coughs> dare I say this, webtv.net. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, there are still people who use web TV. It's a there great thing. Uh, Tim, my friend, thanks for joining us. 40 years and we're still hanging out. Amazing, guys. <laughs> Tim, nice virtually meeting you, sir. Goodbye. Conversation. Goodbye. Thank you. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. So you see, David, what happens to people at the age of 11. Things happen that change their entire lives, like Tim Beckley. This framed his entire life's work. It never left him. No. 
He still does it. I mean, and, you know, you can't say Tim Beckley is a rich man. He's not rich by any means. He's just a working person, working stiff like the rest of us. He struggles to make a living. And he still feels this is his life's mission to educate people about all of these crazy mysteries. I think when you have these paranormal experiences, Gene, um, they do tend to affect the rest of your life, and in ways that you don't even understand when they happen to you. Uh, you know, these things reverberate through your life, and really, what they underscore and what the Paracast is all about, I'd like to think, is that we really don't understand a lot of what's going on around us in the universe, and we'd like to try to get a better grip on the nature of reality through understanding things that are outside of what we call the normal realm of experience. And that's why this is The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.